Hi, this is Kim Davis, and welcome to another one-on-one podcast. And today I have with me as a guest Kitty Colding, who's CEO of InfoCore. Welcome. Thank you very much, Kim. It's great to be here. And uh, in town from Denver, I believe. Right, that's right. You have a few business meetings lined up, that kind of thing? I do, yes. have some strategy and some um, marketing meetings, actually. Very good. Well, one thing I really wanted to speak with you about is... um, let me get my acronym right, GDPR. And if anyone listening in doesn't know what that is, you're going to be hearing a lot more about it. This is the new European Union data regulations, data protection specifically. And that has a lot of implications for marketers, even U.S. marketers, if you're going to be dealing with data which is in Europe or going back and forth to Europe, correct? Yes, indeed. But first of all, I'd like to set it up by talking a little bit about InfoCore, which has been around for some years. Now, I was reading some amazing statistics. Like, um, you have uh, data acquisition services in over 150 countries, and you have a data repository of something like 16 billion records. Right. So why is that all exciting for marketers? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, The business of reaching consumers um, in the U.S. is a very different proposition than it is outside the U.S., particularly for U.S.-based marketers. Um, InfoCore has been around for 24 or so years um, and has always done a lot of business in the U.S., but um, has always had its other foot in other places in the world. Um, And so we have spent those years um, really cataloging and documenting every single audience source that we have ever come across in all those years. And so the repository that you mentioned um, is actually sort of a library of data assets. We don't possess the data itself. Instead, we possess records about each data asset that we've encountered a sort of metadata about each source. Okay, got it. And so the things that we track are things like how many records they have, whether it's consumer data or business data, um, uh, how the data is sourced, what attributes are available um, uh, on the file. So things like, you know, is it Mm -hmm. age and income and demographic type of information? Is there purchase behavior? Those kinds of things. We also understand how it's collected, how it's updated, how frequently it's updated, and how it's priced. But most critically, we also keep track of its relative compliance with existing data privacy legislation in that local country, which once you get outside the U.S. is awfully important (laughs) because in the U.S. we tend not to be as uh, exercised about uh, privacy issues as many other countries are. And so um, we tend to work with large um, uh, sort of Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 marketers and their agencies. And if they are not already very familiar with the markets in which they're working, it can be a very uh, stressful um, proposition to work in markets they've not participated in before. So we make it our business to, first and foremost, understand the legislation related to data privacy and the handling of personal information in each market where we function um, so that we can intelligently explain those constraints and limitations and opportunities to our client. Um, But then we also look a layer deeper at the audience sources themselves that the marketer may be considering to help them understand whether that particular source is, first of all, compliant at all, 
And secondly, um, if they're specifically compliant with the kind of use that the marketer has for the data at the time. Okay. So it's, it's a layered kind of a thing that we have to look into each time. And it's, it's serious business. You know, the stakes are quite high in many markets. Um, the fines and penalties are non-trivial yes. in, in many places. And so they rightly take it very seriously. Yeah, so just to clarify, it's not your business to be actually pumping data to the marketers for them to uh, market their products. You're kind of taking this overall view about what data sources are appropriate to use, which are compliant, uh, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, exactly. And um, we assist in the acquisition of those data uh, as per the marketer's needs. So the first thing we do is help them understand the framework of what is possible and impossible where they may wish to go. Then we talk to them about available sources. Um, and then if they're interested in pursuing any of them, we go a layer deeper, do all that work. Uh-huh. Um, and we actually function, we're, we're an intermediary. So we yep. function in that regard as almost a, a media buyer. So we go to the source, um, negotiate, do a lot of discovery and um, information collection, and bring the client back a set of kind of pricing options and execution ideas for maybe 10 different sources so that they can make a decision about how they want to proceed. Got it. So uh, just um, understanding the nuances here, the data then would come from that source to your client. Once your client is happy, it's all set up, it's what they need. It's not coming through you as a channel, or is it? Um, it depends on the the situation. We typically try not to touch data mm-hmm. um, um, just as a best practice, you know, you don't want to be in possession of data if you don't have to be. So we will use international file sharing or, you know, um, a locally based uh, servers or F- uh, FTP kinds of servers um, so that we ourselves are not possessing the data. Okay. Um, uh, it's just it's alleviating risk on everyone's part. But it's true that our job is to facilitate the transfer of the data from from the from the seller to the buyer. Right. Um, now, right. sometimes that's a that's a more um, conceptual thing than than what you might be thinking. Uh, sometimes a client will license a large quantity of data and they will actually take possession of it. But in other cases, what they're doing is renting access to an audience. Sure. And in that case, um, they're not taking possession of the data. They're getting the benefit of reaching a segment of an audience that they want to reach, but they're not getting their names and addresses okay. and email addresses and phone numbers. Okay, got it. So let's talk a little bit about Europe. Um, people should realize we talk very glibly about Facebook and Google as if they're U.S. companies, which they are, but they have a huge presence in Europe, as do many other companies. And indeed, Facebook and Google, and not just them, have had some run-ins with the European Union in the past because previous European Union data protection regulations were fairly stringent. But now we're in a new world where things are stricter still. Mm, So could you tell us a bit about that? So the the original concept behind uh, the introduction of the GDPR... um, many of us feel, was really to poke Google and Facebook in the eye. I mean, that's, <laughs> right. that was really, frankly, what was behind it. Yep. Um, and so um, these <laughs> truly lugubrious uh, clauses and requirements and limitations were written, I, I think, with, with that largely in mind. Yes. But the resulting effect to virtually all kinds of marketing, um, and it's truly global because... 
the GDPR, it doesn't just say uh, if you're transferring data from European citizens to the U.S., it, it must be handled this way. That's handled by something called the Privacy Shield, right. which was is the replacement for what used to be the Safe Harbor Treaty. But the GDPR says anyone anywhere who is interacting with Europe, consumers who are part of one of the EU member states must adhere to this very, very stringent set of requirements. Yeah. And so it doesn't really matter um, where you are or what you are. You are you are by default subject to these requirements okay. if you interact with these with Europeans. So um, the there are a series of really large problems. Even just I, I mean, apart from the fact that I personally just disagree philosophically with the idea of it because I think it hobbles marketing and, and it makes no sense for economic growth in these markets. But right. put all that aside for a moment. Just as a practical matter, the idea of um, what they're actually trying to do is to restrict who has access to this data and to ensure, the spirit was, to ensure that those who are in possession of this data are treating it very, very carefully. Uh, so that's a fine set of ideals. Um, but the requirements actually create the opposite effect. And what I mean is, in the example you asked me about mm -hmm. a moment ago where I said, you know, we try not to put our hands on data for lots of different reasons. There's no point in exposing data to any risk if you don't have to. That's just our, our and many other people's belief. Well, in GDPR, um, we are required to take possession of the data. And we are not only required to take possession of the data, we are required to store it permanently. And we are required to monitor it. And we are required to handle all kinds of uh, back-and-forth transactions about consumers who might say, I want to be off this list, right. let's say. Um, we are required to open up that file find that consumer, delete them, create a record about that whole process, and then share that downstream with the party we sold it to, which might be an agency, and they are required to hold and construct that opportunity exactly the same way. They're required to hold the data, store it, document it, and do the same thing with their client. If it's an agency, you know, then their, their um, entity, their client entity, must handle all of those things. And so that pertains to data that comes through your, your email address. It pertains to your main file storage. It pertains to cloud storage and backups. So you've got this sort of dizzying set of requirements for just that one thing. Yes. Um, and it's, honestly, it's, it's impossible. It, it won't be possible for companies to comply. It, it's just practically... Impossible, and so it sets up this really problematic um, relationship with the um, the Article Twenty Nine Working Party, which is charged with enforcement. Right. They have absolute enforcement powers. Um, they are completely unencumbered by local governments' uh, desires to be more or less stringent on anything. Sure, because this applies across Europe. Yes. Yeah. So all entities must participate. Yep. Um, they can levy enormous fines. Um, um, <laughs> it's just, it's sort of a stunning set of, of outcomes that I just think um, 
are going to be very, very difficult to, to be compliant with. The irony seems to me to be one's first reaction is this is going to be impossible to police with all this data flying around. But the way you describe it, and here's where the irony is, it seems that in order to have a hope of policing, policing it, you've got to create even more records about exactly. the data. Exactly. So you're cre- I'm an individual European citizen, let's say, and I've got some data out there. In order to protect my privacy, the people handling that data are going to have to be required to create all kinds of records about it at every step of its journey. Yes, about you and everything yeah. about you. Whereas I would normally <laughs> never possess that sort of data, and if I did, it would be brief, I would delete it, and it would never exist again. Right. Um, yeah, that's that. You've got it exactly right. Now, in in a sense, the uh, the enforcement uh, agency doesn't care because they're not paying for any of this. They can sit back and say, "You have to do all this," and they think you're Google, you're Facebook. You can afford it. You can go and do it. But it's exactly. uh, it affects everybody, doesn't it? It does, and ironically, frankly, in my opinion, it affects everyone but Google and Facebook <laughs> because. They have absolutely no trouble whatsoever redeploying a, a battalion of their enormous legal forces and compliance yes. team to simply go build whatever is needed right. to, uh, you know, effectuate these requirements. Whereas other companies will be truly, um, you know, brought to their knees, ground to a, a halt in terms of their ability to, you know, if if you're a media company to to market you know, access and advertising to, yeah. to your readership if you're a, an intermediary like myself or you're a marketer trying to reach consumers to do customer acquisition. I, I truly don't know how it's going to, um, to actually come into reality. I just, there's some other facets to it that are just kind of, they just defy logic. Yes, it's, it's certainly a very bizarre situation. And then there's the opacity of data. We're talking about data now. Uh, huge scale and velocity. I mean, how do you know if you've got a European citizen's data sitting in your in the cloud somewhere? Right. Well, I think increasingly um, data collectors, and I have to I have to be uncomfortably broad when I say this because the truth is, you know, we work in all these countries, and the range of sophistication of data collectors in each country is breathtaking some very, very sort of yes. brute force data collection activities to extremely sophisticated technology-driven, you know, web scraping and uniting all these disparate data assets, you know, yeah. re- really sophisticated stuff and everything in between. Um, so um, I do think that uh, the way that this data is collected, um, I think that marketers are going to have to uh, concern themselves far more greatly with that data collection methodology than right. they really ever have in the past. I mean, you're right. The EU has always had a pretty stringent set of requirements, yeah. but it had been outpaced by um, Southeast Asia, and even Canada is a very, very difficult data privacy uh, set of rules. But you know, this is this is sort of something altogether different. And I see, I'm just looking, you, you recently... Um wrote an article about this, and I'll post the link along with the podcast, but uh, data you already have also comes under the new, the new regulations. There's no grandfathering. There's no way to say, oh, I, I already collected this data. No. It's so twice. you have to go back and yep. essentially re-permission everything that you have. 
And the specificity of the consents that are required under this new legislation is 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 pretty mind-boggling. So, so the what GDPR recommends is um, that you must ask a consumer uh, the topics about which they would um, be comfortable letting their information be shared. So, do would you be comfortable sharing your information with someone trying to sell you? of financial services products. Uh, you could check yes, but under GDPR, you not only have to select financial services, but you have to select credit cards and mutual funds and checking accounts, and you have to get down to this level of granularity. Mm-hmm. So the data collector is required, they, they just naturally will want to give you this enormous set of options because they want to be protected and make sure that Every possible advertiser that might want to interact with you would be covered by their checklist. And the first thing that will do with consumers is freak them out. Why? Absolutely. You're going to be like, I don't think so. (laughs) And so, I mean, I just, I just, and and then the consumer has the right. Somehow, these, these features don't even exist yet in the world, not even with Google or Facebook. But then the consumer must have the right to go back to that data collector and uncheck credit cards. Oh, good Lord. It's just <laughs> not going to happen. So, well, I, I mean, that's, that's why I'd like to conclude with us. We're, we're running short of time. Uh, it's very hard to know how this is going to play out. But right. do you see any concrete outcomes which are going to affect marketers in the near future? I, I see it already. Um, data... Audiences, very, very uh, productive uh, audiences at which marketers point their advertising are coming off the market because they simply can't afford to create and store and manage that data within the the construct that is required. And so marketers have fewer and fewer options to reach very legitimate customers who might be quite interested in their products. Right. And is there an easy way for for a business to say, okay, I'm U.S.-based, I mainly want to sell to, to to U.S. consumers, so I don't really need to worry about this. Is that is that a reasonable position? If they wish to cut off the entirety yeah. of the EU market, sure. Yeah. I, I don't think that's a winning <laughs> formula, but uh, yes, you I, you could say that. Well, not in this global economy. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, Kitty, we're, we're out of time. You've given us some amazing insights into a story which is going to run and run. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Kim, for having me. And everyone, look out for the next one-on-one podcast.